Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Daring Live, all the way from San Diego, California. It is a pleasure once more to be with everybody here. Um, thrilled to have you all. Um, it is a nice, beautiful, sunny afternoon here again. Um, and today we've got a very, very cool guest. But before I introduce him, uh, a quick reminder, next week is what would otherwise be IBMA in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, this year, with everything going on, it is a virtual event. We do urge you to go to the World of Bluegrass, IBMA World of Bluegrass. You can sign up. Um, join us. We have no fewer than four live sessions next week, all of which will be revealed uh, on Monday. Uh, and then we have a slew of other things going on with the IBMA uh, sign up as well that you can come check out. So just a reminder for everybody there, if you would normally attend or if you uh, just want to join for the first time in a virtual manner, go for it. We look forward to meeting you. All right, on to our guest. Thank you so much again. We are very excited today to welcome Mr. Dom Flemons. Um, he's a Grammy Award winner, two-time Emmy nominee, and the 2020 United States Fellow, Artist Fellow. Dom Flemons has branded the moniker the American Songster. He is a historian, a banjo historian, an artist. He is a scholar. He is a actor. He is everything you could ever imagine. Um, and he is a considered an expert banjo player, uh, also taking on the harmonica, the jug, the bones, the quills, and other amazing instruments. I'd like to welcome Mr. Dom Flemons. How are you doing, Dom? Well, I'm doing well, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you all here at the, for uh, Deering Live. It's a pleasure to have you. Absolutely. And then Mr. Dave, how are you? Again. Hey, how you doing? Good to be here. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, thanks again. Um, let's get things kicked off, shall we? Um, you want to play us a little tune in, and then we'll, uh, we'll have a chat. Sure thing. Well, in 2005, I went to the Black Banjo Gathering, and, and they told me about an album called Altamont. This is a song I learned from that album. This one's called Po' Black Sheep. Oh, lammy, po' black sheep ain't got no man. Thank you. 
fantastic love it. Love man there's a lot I'd, lo- I'd love to dig into about the plane style um right there there's a lot there's a lot you did but before we get into that let's uh why don't we get into kind of you know how you got into playing the banjo and the different kind of folk styles that, that you know that you play absolutely well my personal journey with the banjo began i guess back in a Around 1998, 1999, I saw a documentary on the history of rock and roll, and I got interested in playing the guitar. And there was a moment where, um, back in Phoenix, where I'm, I'm from, I went into the guitar shop to actually uh, get a friend of mine a guitar, and uh-huh. I ended up with a banjo. And it was a, a Ludwig four-string tenor banjo, a Dixie Ludwig banjo. And I didn't realize that there was a difference between four strings and five strings. I had only seen... Right banjo on tv might have heard it on old jazz records but i didn't really think much about uh there there being a difference in styles or sounds Mm -hmm. at that time so when i learned the banjo i learned a lot of songs i knew on the guitar first and then i adapted them onto the banjo as i saw fit Mm -hmm. and at the same time i started to listen to records by people like uh, mike seeger or um doc boggs clarence ashley um any number of players and that sort of got me started on a path to wanting to learn the banjo. And then I heard Gus Cannon, and that changed everything. And then I was just learned a new type of banjo. How, so how did Gus Cannon change everything for you? What was what, what did you hear in that that really spoke to you? Well, there were two albums that I was obsessively listening to for many years when I was in college. And one of them was Blind Willie McTell's Last Session, which is a beautiful recording of the great a late great Blind Willie McTell, the blues singer. Yeah. And around the same time, I found an album called Gus Cannon, Walk Right In, which came out on Stax record. And I was a big fan of soul music and early 60s soul music. So I recognized it by the label. Right. And picked up the record and saw it was a banjo player. And when I heard Gus Cannon's story and I heard his banjo style, I was completely enthralled and drawn into that style. And uh, I was studying literature. I had I got a degree in English, so I was studying, uh, amongst everything, the depictions of African Americans within literature. And so uh-huh. when I began to listen to Gus Cannon's music, I found that I found uh, another strain of that uh, subject matter. So I began to follow his music, and I began to enjoy it and listen to a lot of jug band music from Memphis Jug Band on. And I found a unique style of banjo that was blues based mm-hmm. um, that I began to. Pursue, And then, of course, uh, since I was in Arizona, I, there weren't a lot of banjo players. So I began to start doing blues jams where I would start playing blues on the banjo, even though in the uh-huh. traditional setting. Yeah. I started to listen to Sun House. And I started to adapt old-time country blues onto the banjo because I found the polyrhythms fit. Yeah. Yeah. 
I started out as a drummer actually in high school and I played in a four bass drum marching band in the marching band when I was in high school. So the uh, idea of polyrhythms in African-American music always right. drew me in. And when I began to, uh, first I started to play the banjo cause I had heard, uh, I just started to hear some of that, mm -hmm. some of that beautiful polyrhythmic sound and a lot of that old time jazz. And I, mm -hmm. I wanted to get that sound. I also love Caribbean music. Right. And I wanted to incorporate those type of sounds because when I began to start playing the banjo and I started to learn the chords, I found that there was a vocabulary that um, just by attack, you could imply so many different styles. And so without any guidance at first up until 2005, I began to just teach myself to play. And then when I went to the Black Banjo Gathering, that was the first time I was able to find a framework that allowed me to think of it as a vernacular music or as right. an ambassador and things like that. But before then, I just was interested in music and was experimenting. And were you still playing the tenor banjo up to that point? Always up to that point. The first banjo I got, actually, a friend of mine went on a trip to Europe, and he was another guitar player. He had a five-string, and he'd taken the fifth string out of it. Yeah. And so I learned to play just, um, you know, I mean, I could just show you an example, like, um, I don't know. Yeah, think, yeah. Uh, uh, Alan, one of my favorites that I keep with me is uh, Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard by Paul Simon. Sure. Um, but do, think of a wacky cartoon version. Yeah. You know, and so on and so forth. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. early on when I was experimenting with how to play the instrument, there wasn't anybody to tell me that you can't play Paul Simon on it or right, uh, right. play uh, the zombies. I used to do... Um, um, uh, maybe after he's gone. So I just experimented because the chords uh, all made sense and the banjo has uh -huh. been able to weave a lot of different polyrhythms. But of course, I was drawn to the sound of people like Clarence Ashley. Of course, I can't play any of uh, the modal tunes uh, right, right. now, just tuning. But right. I used to play the, the Cuckoo and um, Pretty Polly and uh -huh. Lady. And um, also, I used to play a lot of Doc Boggs. I used to play Country Blues right. and, and, and uh, some Roscoe Holcomb numbers and Anything that I could find that had banjo in it. Um, at that time, uh, the Black Banjo Songsters of North Carolina and Virginia hadn't uh, come onto my radar. That wouldn't be until I went to the Black Banjo Gathering and met C.C. Conway and began to um, reach deep into that history. But for me, it was always, uh, I always looked at it from a country blues angle. Right. Uh, you right. know, that was always where I started. And were you tuning at the tenor and standard tenor tuning? Or... Another it was tuning. an open G because I had oh, okay. five string and open G. And I learned a couple of tunings. I learned open C, uh, open D with D, F sharp, A, D uh, for certain tunes. Also, the like I said, the sawmill tuning. Right. Um, and then there's a version of Cindy I do where I drop the B string down to an A to get a modal tuning so I can get kind of a... After I started listening to John Snipes, I kind of developed a way of playing like that. Okay, cool. That gives you an extra third finger. You get the doodling, doodling, doodling on one yep, finger, yep. and then you get or any of those things. So, uh, again, there was uh, it was whatever songbooks I could find at that time until I went to um, North Carolina. Um, it was just whatever I could find. Um, 
I got into Papa Charlie Jackson just a little bit before, and I started to play his song, Your Baby Ain't Sweet Like Mine. And that got me interested in the six string banjo. And so then I found one and I first had a, a homemade one that someone had made that I bought in a guitar shop. And then I eventually found a real factory made one. Mm-hmm. Get, uh, when did you start playing the plectrum banjo? The plectrum banjo first, the, after I got that Ludwig banjo, which eventually fell apart, I got another banjo that fell apart, which was a Bakelite harmony banjo tenor. Okay. And uh, I always liked the longer neck of the plectrum banjo because I started mm -hmm. on the five string. So I was able to, especially with playing blues, some of the stuff is a little easier with the, a longer scale. Right. And I was, um, I got uh, that Bakelite banjo and carried it with me forever. And, and after a certain point, as that thing started to fall apart, that was when I got to know uh, the Deerings, and I actually ordered my very first uh, Sierra Plectrum banjo because I wanted the tone ring, because I wanted the volume. Because when I met Joe Thompson, uh, he pulled out a, a, his cousin Odell Thompson's banjo, and it was a gigantic bluegrass banjo with a tone ring. And I liked uh -huh. the idea of getting that sort of volume and punch, especially in the context of playing blues and early jazz that's sort of one of the, the aesthetic qualities that makes old time jazz and blues really uh, uh, different sounding than other types of music. And so I was drawn to that idea. So I wanted to get one of these. I had an open back Vega for many years that I played on tour, but the short scale was just tough for me to do, especially once we started playing um, much bigger venues. It, I'd really needed something that could, that could hold down a, a, a whole uh, concert in, the, in a big venue. Right, that resonator really helps. Huh? Oh, yeah. And then just I love the sound of the banjo as well. Um, just the way that it's it's uh, designed and also the way that the back uh, fits on it. I liked it a little better than having an open back, especially for the type of material I was doing. Right. If I wanted to play something louder, I could lean on the back and I could, I could lean on the back. But if I wanted to be a little softer, I can... If I'm comping behind somebody doing a, a jazz song, I can comp a little lighter, and the mm -hmm. is great for doing both of those things. And you're using G tuning as your main tuning on the plectrum? Yeah, all G tuning. And, right. and even when I teach my lessons, I, I always try to teach people because, again, if you're playing old time banjo and you're playing out of open G, yeah. one thing to know is that you can really still play all of the inversions all the way up the neck. Right. But a lot of times we don't spend the time, even if you're playing Cripple Creek, if mm -hmm. you're like, right. just to know that these inversions of the chords are what make that melody, it gives you a different perspective on how you play. Because when I was learning open tunings on the guitar, for example, I was learning songs like Sitting on Top of the World by yeah. Doc Watson, for example, yeah. or... Um, uh, 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 off camera, we were talking about Bob Dylan and Blood on the Tracks, a lot of the yeah. open uh, detuning. So I translate a lot of the things I learned in, with that style of folk guitar onto the banjo, and I found that they were able to communicate with each other. So a lot of country blues songs uh, became easier for me to play on the banjo to translate back to the guitar, and then it, it worked the other way around. So then I'd learn, uh, once I learned Furry Lewis's style of playing, then I could translate that onto the banjo even though furry lewis wasn't a banjo player you can uh and you can you can hear the roots of 
blues music in the banjo music. And then, of course, North Carolina was a beautiful place to uh, cut my teeth as an old-time banjo player because there were so many wonderful players that were around at that time. There still are to this day. Mm -hmm. There were so many wonderful players around that that um, played in both styles and guitar and banjo style. And so I just I just took it all in. That's great. It seems like a good opportunity because a lot of our, our guests are five-string players and, and honestly a lot of our audience are five-string players as well. Uh, it seems like a good opportunity to maybe do a real quick, um, what's the difference? What's the difference between a plectrum and a tenor and a five-string? And, and Dave, you're in that, that sure. world as well. So maybe um, just maybe a minute or two, if you guys don't mind, for, for those at home who are maybe wondering. I know Maz B is a guitar player looking to stretch into banjo. She's on the chat or he's on the chat right now. Um, so give a quick breakdown of those those main styles yeah if, if you don't mind a little bit dave i'd love to know a little bit of more information about the four string because i actually found out about it after i began to play it i didn't know about four string playing or anything about the history of it beforehand so i've always kind of meshed them together so i mean i five string is uh, associated with the the early african banjo and a lot of the african and caribbean derived uh, instruments that came over with enslaved Africans. And then over many, many years, it becomes a factory instrument and goes to this whole translation. Mm -hmm. So that was that was always my uh, journey all the way through. But I, I knew four string was a part of the, the jazz era, but I, I really don't know more about its history specifically. Yeah, the history on the four string is, is fuzzy, definitely. Um, and, you know, it all came, you know, the five string is, is the original more original banjo on the four string is a variation on uh, you know on the on the banjo um coming out coming about in the late 19th century both the plectrum and the tenor i play the tenor and i've, I've, I've tried to find the true i've asked a lot of people about the true root of where the tenor came and there's very there's no defined um, of where, because tenor tenor is the incorrect term musically for the ban for the tenor banjo, because it's mm. you know soprano, alto, tenor, bass from high to low, mm. and tenor is not a lower tune banjo. It, it, by its name, tells you that it is a lower pitched instrument, but it's not at all. You know, it's uh, there's the the history that I the one kind of story that I've heard that I kind of like to go with because it makes some sense <laughs> is. Is there is a tango craze in America, not not Argentinian tango, but a, but a, and they had orchestras playing it and violas and and it was called the tango banjo because it's tuned like a viola and a vi the string section could play then play the, this instrument and uh, and then somewhere it got morphed into tenor banjo, um, some incorrect thing that happens somewhere along the line. Nobody really knows because it's, you know, the term is wrong. Um, uh, and then the plectrum, the plectrum, I, I know, came about at the same time, but, uh, you know, it's, the plectrum is what you, you know, it's a flat pick and, uh, and they just called, I think it just came about because you played it with a flat pick. Um, but it was all for that, you know, that, that era, you know, jazz wasn't invented yet. So it was more, it was that ragtime era, uh, um, where, you know, and and where there's other music other than just, uh, um, other than kind of, uh, you know, is playing that when you're starting to get that European classical 
you know, morphed into American music sort of thing, which jazz was kind of created out of, you know, in ragtime. Absolutely. Well, you know, I brought two special banjos with me to kind of uh, demonstrate this point exactly. Uh, one of the banjos, um, I'm going to skip the five and go right to six real quick here. And uh, this is my good friend, Big Head Joe. And this is a custom-made string banjo that uh, I found many years ago at at Retro Fret in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, years ago, I went to one of their uh, New Year's Eve parties, and I found this banjo in the back. And I, of course, you notice the size of this banjo. I mean, just to give the audience at home just a comparison. I mean, look at this. This is a, I mean, I was transfixed to play a banjo this size. One because of the size, because of course, as a as a um, a a uh, performance artist, you know you can't beat an instrument that looks like this. And then, it <laughs> and it sounds really lovely too, which even makes it better. But I was also uh, very interested in this instrument because it looks so much like the six-string Gibson banjo that Papa Charlie Jackson, one of the early pioneers of country blues and jazz, mm-hmm. he an instrument that looked very similar to this one and so for years i've played one of his numbers and i'll do it in his style i usually play it on the four string but i'm going to play it in papa charlie style this one's your baby ain't sweet like mine just to give you a little sense of that different style because um what's interesting about the six string banjo in general is it has a very thin thin high end so it's a little thin up here but uh-huh. as you get lower, all of a sudden, the mid-range and the low mid-range, yeah. all of a sudden you have this beautiful bass voice that comes out of it. So when you hit a G chord, even conventional, even conventional picking, it takes on a five-string-ish quality just by picking it. But you yeah. can also play fancy jazz. You know, and you can do Piedmont picking as well. But let me do your baby ain't sweet like mine here. Just yeah. to get a taste. Everybody talking about the sweetie nowadays. I got the one with the sweetest ways. Your baby may roll a jelly fine. Nobody's baby can't roll it like mine. Your baby ain't sweet like mine. She bake a jelly roll all the time. And when I'm feeling lonesome and blue, my baby knows just what to do. Yes, sir. She even called me a honey. She even let me spend the money. Never has a baby put me out door. She even buys me all my clothes. And we don't want to brag, just want to put you in line. Your baby ain't sweet like mine, oh no. Your baby ain't sweet like mine.
feeling lonesome and blue. My baby not just wanted to do, yes sir, she even called me honey. She even let me spend the money. Never has a baby put me out though. She even buys me all my clothes. I don't want to brag, just want to put you in line. Your baby ain't sweet like mine, oh no. Your baby ain't sweet like mine. Yeah, that's great. And one of the one of the great things in that style of playing, and 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 you hear it in old time, old time string band, you know, guitar playing too, is that those bass runs is that that you're doing. Um, and this this instrument is absolutely made for the bass runs. I actually have a theory that at one point, at some point, the guitar banjo shared a space with jazz guitar where there was a whole bass system in which people were learning how to play bass runs because i happen to notice in a lot of early bluegrass it tends to be all bass runs until maybe the late 40s maybe when it changes over into the sort of the more modern era but i i have a theory because papa charlie's whole style is similar to jimmy rogers style in a way it's the same Mm -hmm. but i think of it as jazzy jimmy rogers so he does You know, and if yeah. you just and you can just you can do the same uh, sort of licks, um, or even Lead Belly tends to use a lot of the same. And those sort of bass runs are a part of the lexicon. And I have a, a theory that banjo guitar might have had some influence at some point, or there was a way to play it that uh-huh. was specific to bass runs and. Uh, this instrument was uh, made by a fellow named Robert H. McGinnis, who I'm actually still looking up information on. He was a, a African-American luthier who actually branded the Clef Club brand instruments for James Reese Europe's banjo orchestra uh, from the teens, the ragtime orchestra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the instruments that was made for that, um, that fateful day when actually they broke the color line at uh, in Carnegie Hall in 1912 <laughs> uh, with their 120 banjo orchestra. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and so this is a, a really interesting instrument, a beautiful inlay as well, just for all of you banjo heads, because a lot of people don't get to see this part. That is nice. You don't get to see because I'm playing, but just a really beautiful inlay. Also, this very interesting truss rod bracing. Yeah, that 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 bar, you know, you've, there is is interesting. What function is it that doing? What is it connected to? I I have no idea. It seems like it should be reinforcing, but it's just there. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't look that strong. (laughs) Uh, I I got a new head on it recently, but it came with its own pit guard. And Uh then um, the lights were broken, but it came with its own lights in the back to keep the head as well on this old time banjo. And, um, there was a beautiful receipt from the hardware store um, from 1921 when the guy bought a, a little piece of door framing to make his own little homemade capo. And it's like <laughs> a piece of door framing that, you, that has a wing nut on it. That uh, It's in the case, but uh, right. very interesting wow. instrument. But um, yeah, just another one of the mysteries of the banjo, though, that, that uh, came into my life, you know? Yeah, and that that rim, that standard for everybody. A standard banjo rim is about is eleven inches across. It's your most standard. There's twelve inch rims, but uh, how big you, do you think that is roughly? That one's about eighteen inches altogether. Yeah, so it's yeah. a lot bigger. 
And, and even when I bought the instrument, I thought it was so similar to the Papa Charlie Gibson banjo that you can see in the one picture of Papa Charlie Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually, he has the same uh, tailpiece on this banjo. But when I bought it at Retrofret, um, the man behind the counter actually pulled out one of those Gibsons, and it's actually 16 inches in diameter. So it's actually somewhat smaller than this banjo right here. So even for the what I thought was a one-of-a-kind banjo, this other one-of-a-kind banjo is even more larger and more interesting than the one that uh, from from a legend, you know? Right. Yeah. And have you always played with a thumb pick, a thumb pick, and, and just your fingers, or is that something you've started to do of late? This, this uh, you know, I've always played with a thumb pick because, um, well, it started out because I kept dropping the flat pick in the guitar sound hole, which is a not uncommon thing when you're yeah, learning. Yeah, definitely. And I went to the music store and saw the thumb pick. I could never figure out how to make finger picks work on my fingers. They just, my fingers, I don't know, for some reason, they don't like to pick like that. (laughs) But the thumb pick was nice because I could get the precision like I was playing a a plectrum style, but I can Mm -hmm. also finger pick since I tend to do a lot of Piedmont style. And uh, I remember the first time I saw pictures of Lightning Hopkins or Lead Belly or any of the the Texas singers, I saw they all had thumb picks and I said, great, that's, um, I'm on the right path and, it was like the, it was like the same time uh, that I, I I've developed a style of playing slide banjo, and I remember the first time I saw a picture of Gus Cannon with a slide banjo. He had it laying across his lap, mm-hmm. and that was something that I did when I first was experimenting. So every once in a while, I'll run across a historical photo that'll confirm some sort of interesting experimentation <laughs> right right it's always good to see that <laughs> like am i just crazy doing this or no some other people have done it in the past and make great yeah. music you know and that so that's a style that i really just you know i don't get to play it often but you know i i um well all i got with me right now is it Let me see. Rolling my sweet baby's on. Yeah, something along those lines, you know. But again, these are these are little styles I picked up as I was uh, as I was trying to experiment with the sounds of the banjo, you know. Yeah. And do you ever up pick with with a thumb pick too? Do you hold it like a flat pick when you're? Uh, every once in a while, but generally I um I will I usually down pick everything because I, uh-huh. I never really tried to to do much right. double thumbing. And um, early on, when I actually watched a a great video of uh, of Doc Watson, he said I never did no th- double thumbing, and so I just um, I just decided I wouldn't try double thumbing much and. But I end up doing some, since I have four strings, I've learned over time how to jump around not having a fifth string in, in terms of figuring out how to make it sound like a claw hammer or frailing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, then also I've been, exper- my one five string I've been experimenting with a bunch has been my little, my little gourd banjo. Oh, wow. Nice. I love that. That's amazing. Is that a, is that a, a vintage instrument or is that a recreation this is a recreation. Um, yeah, this one was was made by um, uh, banjo maker Bob Thornburg, who um, I got to know through my my old friend Mike Seeger. 
Uh-huh. And Mike used to play this wonderful gourd that uh, that uh, Bob made for him. And, and when he made mine, he put made it into a little family tree on the back. And oh, wow. he decided to incorporate these Sankofa birds. And very early on in the banjo's history, I, I began to evoke the word Sankofa, which is a West African proverb, which means go back and fetch it and bring it to the present. Bring the things from the past into the present and let them guide you into the future. And so these little birds depict that sort of journey going forward, but touching their uh, back, back uh, wings as they're flying forward to represent the lessons they're taking forward. And the banjo, of course, is one of those uh, instruments that I feel is Sankofa personified because it really uh, takes on the musical cultures of, um, of, of any type of music and, and you yeah. can technically play banjo with anything. And that's one of the things yeah. that's just so beautiful about the instrument. You know, that's always driven me in, in right. searching for new sounds, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. All right, you gotta give us a run. All right. Looks like it's going to make it this time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's see if we can get a little bit of a... Uh, how about a little bit of John Henry? This is the first one I, I ever heard Joe Thompson uh, play. Uh, I heard he and Bob Carlin play this one in years ago. <laughs> Just real quick, what's the, what's the wood on the fingerboard, you know? I was trying to look at that. Was... Actually, you know, Bob had some extra black palm wood oh. for this one. And so even for the headstock, actually my wife and I, uh, 
actually decided how we wanted to do the headstock. I have quite a few uh, banjo books on the history, including America's uh, Favorite Instrument, uh, yeah. the Banjo and Roots book, uh, Black Banjo Songsters, and uh, quite a few of the other books on early, mid-19th uh, century banjo. And so we ended up looking at a whole bunch of the headstocks and we kind of gave Bob about five or six of them and said, hey, can you do something that's halfway between all of these? Because um, since we, once we started to look at the family tree on the back, we really wanted to make an, it a family heirloom. And so we thought that just really evoking that sort of uh, ornate style that tends to be a part of early banjo history. It, it was really just a fun thing to do. And also, since it's yeah. a modern instrument that plays, it's also a great um, demonstrative piece to show in educational settings and in my concerts, you know? It's amazing. It's a beautiful looking instrument. And, and you know, you, a lot of us, I'm sure, have seen you on various TV shows over the years, uh, you know, talking about the history of the banjo. And I, I know you, this is one of your passions. This is what you, you love to do. Um, it seems, you know, with an instrument like that being played, which sounds so wonderful, it seems like a perfect segue just to really kind of, let's delve into that a little bit. Um, give us your, your, your best take on, on the history of the banjo. We, you know, we all know, I think, that it you know, came from Africa originally, and the modern banjo is quite a different beast to, to what it originally was. Um, take us there. Take us on that journey and, and teach us you know, that, 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 that whole transition. Well, one of the things to know about the banjo is the banjo is a symbol of everything that is progressive and also everything that is regressive in the United States at the same time. And it seems very strange to start out a, a, my comment in this way, but from the very beginning of the uh, birth of the United States as we know it, the banjo has, uh, has shown up as a presence amongst uh, enslaved Africans. And so you have stories of, um, you have many different types of West African and uh, actually many types of instruments from all over the continent that sound a lot like the banjo or look um, like the banjo in one way or another. Um, a lot of what they call spiked lutes and semi-spiked lutes. Like for example, this is a spiked lute because the, the um, you know, the the neck goes all the way through the instrument, and then there are other ones that they don't all the way go all the way through, like a guitar is a semi-spiked lute. But there are a lot of different instruments in those families. And over time, either probably the memory, that's uh, the main thing, is the memory of these instruments came over. Because in, in African music-making culture, you have to be able to sing what you're going to play before you're actually given an instrument. And so there's a cultural a musical practice of memory of what you're supposed to do, the rhythms you're supposed to make and how you're supposed to make them and their functions. And so you have that translating into the Caribbean, uh, again, through the plantation system in the Caribbean. Uh, they found um, the banjo in Jamaica and Martinique specifically. Mm -hmm. And then you find the banjo making a resurgence by the uh, 1820s, 1830s, 1840s in the United States. So it's a gradual process of music making that goes all the way into the United States. And then by the 1840s, you begin to have theatrical performers who are using European models of uh, musical theater. Um, uh, music Hall is a later version of this, but they're um, if you think back on Shakespeare and the play Hamlet, there's a small traveling theatrical troupe in the play. You have to think along those sort of lines. These older European styles came over to the United States, and within that, the, uh, the makeup of the clown matched with the African slave and became the black-faced minstrel. And it, 
the Blackface Minstrel Show was a show that was not only theater, but it was also political satire for the things that were happening uh, on the political and social scale. And so the banjo became a symbol of the Blackface Minstrel Show. Of course, the Blackface Minstrel Show's jokes featured horrible stereotypes and derogatory images of African-Americans within the setting of the plantation or the city or any place where African-Americans would go, especially um, after they were um, emancipated from freedom. And this, the music took this quality that was very dark, but also those were very dark times. And, you know, so you have to fast forward into the 1890s to the era we're speaking of, the banjo becomes elevated as a, as a semi-classical instrument because there's a movement to codify American music as an idea. And the banjo was a part of that. But they created the symbol of, of the banjo to be a classical instrument that's played in the parlor by women. And yeah. so uh, now a divergent banjo tradition begins to evolve that is semi-classical beyond just the folk roots of the banjo. And so by the 1920s, you have the, the birth of the recording industry. You start mm -hmm. to have music diverging into, again, semi-professional folk musicians, non-professional folk musicians, professional folk musicians, and then any type of popular performer who might incorporate the banjo from people like Teresa Vaughn, who was a, black, uh, a white woman vaudevillian who was, um, she played a little or orphan character in her, her musicals, but she featured the, a Buckabee banjo, so it became popular that way. But you also had blackface performers using them. You had ragtime performers, pop singers using them. Um, during the era when Hawaiian music becomes popular in the First World War era, the, the tenor banjo almost takes on a ukulele quality, and they make the ukulele banjo. And every step of the way, the banjo starts uh, incorporating other aspects of in instruments of the United States. And so we get up to the 1940s, of course, bluegrass and old time and uh, becomes a part of banjo music. Uh, early jazz is a part of uh, banjo music and then by the 1940s you start having a divergence again you have uh, the scrug style develops um, at, in a three finger style and then you have Pete Seeger's folk banjo method book going out and that creates a uh, for the first time an academic version of what people were doing on the porch and so again that becomes a divergence that turns into you know new grass and uh every other type of music that comes along. And of course, how I came along was a resurgence of traditional music. And I, yeah. and I always uh, tried to push the old time styles. So like, for example, Gus Cannon, not many people were playing that style. So I decided to bring that style forward as well as the other songsters, which is why I ended up taking the moniker of the American songster. But banjo is a, it's a quite a, quite a wide, uh, wide oh, net. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's got and when you say like progressive as well as regressive, you know, it, it just goes to show it's like an that evolution uh, for the instrument. It's a lot like uh, guitar in a way, or, or other instruments, to where you take a Robert Johnson who was playing, you know, and then look at the contrast between him and what Clapton did, or Hendrix did, or Steve Vai did, or something, or any of those guys. You know, it's it's just a completely different take on a similar instrument, and it evolves as it goes along. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. Have you had a chance to, to go out to uh, to Africa to kind of get? I know Better Fleck did it when he went and filmed um, "Throw Down Your Heart." And, I would love to, I would love to go out to the continent. I've had mm -hmm. several casual invitations, but I haven't had anything that's uh, that's. 
come together. You know, it's funny. When I went to the Black Banjo Gathering in 2005, Bela was there and he had just come back from Africa and he was telling everyone about how he had this amazing trip to Africa and one day he would do something. So when Throw Down Your Heart came out, I, you know, I emailed him and I was like, congratulations, because I, I got to meet him. And again, I was 23 years old when I met him. So it, I was a, a young, impressionable banjo player. But to get to shake Bela Fleck's hand at one of these very special moments in his own musical career, it was just, um, it was really neat. So I've always wanted to do more. Um, of course, I've gotten to know a few different players. Uh, actually, you know, I got to guest star playing the Rhythm Bones. Unfortunately, I didn't get to play any banjo, but uh, I guest starred on Baseku Kuyate's last album, Miri, uh, on a, a tune called Fanga, where I'm playing the Rhythm Bones with him. But uh, hopefully one day I'll get to do some African banjo, because, of course, um, a big influence is Taj Mahal. His album Kulan John is, uh, mm -hmm. is always uh, in the back of my mind uh, when I think about the Africanizing of the banjo sound, especially in an interpretive sense, because there's a holistic thing you have to do where you have to kind of take the music in a in a different direction, I guess, if you will, where as an African-American performer or person of color, I'm, I'm again, in case people don't know, ethnically, I'm African-American and Mexican-American. So <laughs> for the, for those who haven't picked up. Yeah. I have two... Um, I have two identities that I think about when I interpret my music, you know, and, and the gourd banjo. And um, recently I actually did a, a series of shows um, with a group called Pasatono Orchestra from, uh, from um, Oaxaca, Mexico. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, uh, I was just about to ask that. They told me, you know, and they told that they told me they have their own tenor banjo tradition and they played me a series of numbers that are traditional Oaxacan Mexican banjo songs but they're played with double banjos oh really and, um, yeah. you know and and again i didn't know much more about the tradition than what they they had told me and i only had just a little bit of time to be with them but these are the sort of things that um just looking for that type of imagery looking for those types of history in the grand scheme of things it's led me to a couple of amazing discoveries that I, even when i first started i never would have guessed i would have seen something like, uh, yeah, again, Oaxacan uh, tenor banjo tradition. I never thought anything like that existed, but it was it was beautiful to be able to juxtapose that with the music I've been working with as well. So um, when interpreting, you, you know, one of the things I do is I tend to like to try to, I don't know, reduce 50 books down to just a small three-minute segment so that people can understand culturally where music is coming from. And that's something I just try to do very consciously. And, yeah. and as a, again, as a musician of color, I've never made a point to talk about my race when I'm performing, but I, I, there are stories that I can tell that um, have, have allowed people to hear the message. Because if you think of African banjo, Pete Seeger mentions that the banjo came from Africa in the first paragraph of his book that came out in 1949. Yeah. Um, but why has it taken so long for people to recognize that that is a fact? Um, it, it's hard to say, but it's it's not that the information wasn't ever there. Mm -hmm. No, and it's been, it, it needs to be out there a lot more. You know, I think it's the stories that you tell, you know, just in the weeks coming up to this, I, I spent more time than I normally would watching videos of, of yourself and, and others, uh, Rhiannon, especially talking to people like David Holt. You know, that was a big move. Um, seeing you uh, talk about this at the Earl Scruggs uh, Center, I think it was four years ago? 
Yeah, that was about yeah. four years ago. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Was, you had that same uh, same banjo, really, but it, it's it's fascinating, and those stories and, and the well and the, the the accurate history of everything needs to be to be sold. You know, it's uh, absolutely there. This is this is why we have you on, sir. It's uh, it's a very important fact of of what we do as a company. You know, as a, we're a banjo company, and I think a lot of people we know this to be true. A lot of people who are not familiar with the instrument. When you say the word banjo, they, they kind of automatically gravitate to or Scruggs, you know, or the Beverly Hillbillies, that kind of real mainstream, certainly more recent uh, history, shall we say. Um, and it's not until they start delving a little deeper, like I, I can see on the chat right now, a lot of people are familiar with what you're talking about, um, and they know it, which is great, you know. I do have a couple of questions. There's, there's a, a two or three very, very keen Brazilians uh, on the chat today. <laughs> And they, they are super excited, um, and they want to know, have you ever had a chance to hear any Brazilian banjo music? Uh, and if so, what did you think? Oh, I have not heard this Brazilian uh, banjo music. Just the American songster at Gmail. Send me anything down that you'd like. That'd be amazing. Uh, I am familiar with uh, music like Faro music and a couple of different folk styles of music, but to... I have, you know, again, uh, the international banjo story is of more so than anything else is still a story that is uh, uh, far unrepresented in the world of banjo. Of course, the African-American banjo is one of the biggest stories because it is it is really the link to all of the modern banjo we know now because, of course, you have to imagine the world's banjo uh, cultures uh, don't have to just come from Africa, but Africa can mean multiple things based on the history. And, and that's one of the things... Um, Again, I would love to hear more uh, Brazilian banjo specifically. I'd love to know what that means and uh, and what that um, what that tradition represents in the in the grand scheme. Yeah, I got a chance sure. to go down to Rio a couple of years ago and uh, at, during Carnival and uh, and was I, I you know I I think of myself as fairly well versed on the history of the banjo, but I was shocked. There's street performers coming up to you with 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 a banjo, you know, it's a four string banjo. It's essentially, essentially a style of almost a tenor banjo with nylon strings. You know, it, it's, it's different, but it's, but it's very, very close and, uh, playing samba music and it, and it works perfectly. You know, it's, it's amazing. And then, uh, yeah, it's just always, whenever you've opened that door and there's another, I remember a few years ago when I discovered Jamaican mento music and I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. And then it just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, and that's what I'm more uh, familiar with when it comes to some of the Caribbean styles. Um, I, I got introduced to that style of playing. It's funny enough, you know, there's the ragtime picker Blind Blake, but in the 1950s, there was another, there was a banjo player, Blind Blake. His name was Alphonse Higgs, and he recorded in the 1950s. And so by accident, I found a Blind Blake record that was a Calypso record. And he was a beautiful four-string player, and he played a lot of great um, songs like "Jump in the Line" and um, "Hold 'Em, Joe." A lot of stuff that, like Harry Belafonte, recorded. But it, it um, they had uh, two guitars, a banjo, and congas, or or, and he switched. The other guy switched on upright bass. Really beautiful banjo playing. Um, and so I started to learn a little bit of that style. Like uh, when I used to play with, um, uh, I used to play with Layla McCalla a whole bunch, and. Um, she used to do a song called um, uh, uh, Rosemary, I think she uh, named it. I can't remember. When you play backup, you, it's hard to remember what the I name am, is. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, even if you play it a hundred times, you're like, yeah, what yeah. is this? You know, someone says, what's the verses to those songs? Right. I remember one, so one person asked me what the verses to Sourwood Mountain were. And I was like, ooh, that's a good question. Then I started <laughs> to sing it and I started to know them. But, you know, you just, you're, it, it sounds like, right. you know, but, uh, you know, there was a part in it because it was a two chord song. <laughs> a certain attack that i i've always tried to keep and that that goes back to every time i've listened to any type of caribbean music i just have always instead of hitting a note just you know i've always or even um back when i did the song uh, mahala i always treated that kind of like a caribbean number even though it's a south african number um this is um i remember seeing uh a, a video of Hannes Kotsier played this on the guitar with a spoon in his mouth and uh, the melody was so beautiful I thought about Pete Seeger how he used to, how he adapted like Blue Skies and all these different tunes onto the banjo and I thought about changing it and it came together like this So the other part of um, uh, the historical element that I know you've really embarked on, um, throughout, particularly in your solo career, you know, is the the history of the black cowboy, which I, I'm going to be completely ignorant. I that was not on my radar. You'd be surprised by that, maybe, but it was fascinating. I you know I heard you talk about the Buffalo Soldiers. I heard you talk about uh, Stagecoach Maggie and and the kind of you know the first. Uh, uh, Cowboys of the West, really. You know, can, can you delve into that a little bit? Um, and certainly, that's a, that's a Jamie Deering interest as well. I will point that out. She explicitly asked because she was curious as well a bit more. So. Oh, absolutely. Well, with the Black Cowboys, it was a really interesting project to put together. But this history, if, again, if we start to think about the years after the emancipation from slavery, there's a certain period of time where the United States began to move out westward, but it was before you had strict jurisdictions as we think of now with all of the West Coast states. And so you had these 
periods of time where you had working people that were working independently. Of course, Black Cowboys is the jumping off point, but it's all based around the idea of finding work and building a better life for oneself. And I used a bunch of songs uh, from the cowboy canon that, um, that spoke to this idea. Uh, one of the ways I used Big Head Joe, um, I took a tin type of Big Head Joe for the liner notes, but I also took a moment to record a song in the style of Hen Ooh, Henry Ragtime, Texas Thomas. And on the Black Cowboys record, I featured Big Head Joe and uh, the Quills to showcase some of the style. And for when I started to play Henry Thomas's style, I always tried to get a little bit of the oscillating bass that uh, reminded me of the bajo sexto. So I always tried to get a little bit of a, a Tex-Mex feel. And then also, I did that on uh, Going Down the Road Feeling Bad and, and Knox County Stomp had put a little bit of a Tex-Mex feel on both those songs. But here's a little bit of Charmin' Petsy uh, featuring the quills just like Henry Thomas used to play.
Nice. Wow. Very good. <laughs> that was amazing. And one of the things I wanted to do is that Henry Thomas's music is a part of the East Texas songster tradition, and I just wanted to just encourage a little bit of that blending of the songster tradition of East Texas with the cowboy tradition. Because a lot of folks who are into Lightning Hopkins and into Lead Belly and Henry Thomas, we know that this is a part of cowboy music. So I just wanted to gently bring that into the project. And that was one of the ways I did that with banjos. I did a little bit of Lead Belly on the banjo as well as uh, some Henry Thomas on Big Head Joe. Love it. I love it. It's, it's such a, a diverse... It seems like every time you pick up or start singing or different playing a banjo, it's a different voice entirely. You know, it's a different period of time almost. You know, it's... Uh, it's fascinating. And you were playing the, you, you play a bunch of other instruments as well. You, I saw an amazing video of you playing the bones with David Holt. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. That was cool. I think he was playing banjo and you were playing the bones along with him. Um, how did that come about? How did you get into playing things like the bones? Well, like the bones, right when I moved out to North Carolina in 2006, I went to the Mount Airy Fiddlers Convention, and there was a lady that met me that saw the rhythmic way I was strumming the guitar, because at that time I was really going for the big strums, because um, mm. uh, in the group I kind of wanted to drive the music, so I always did wah, wah, wah when I was strumming, and... Um, you know, she saw the way I was playing and thought that I should learn to play the bones because she just thought that my sense of rhythm would make sense. And um, my background started in drumming, you know, so uh, it was sort of a full circle for me. So I, I had, uh, that was my only formal training in high school was playing drums. And so the idea of, and it wasn't just drums, it was percussion specifically. So the bones fit hand in hand with my formal training on percussion. And in old time music, they hadn't, there, there are drums and percussion a little bit in old time music, but of course this is an area of contention for many people. Part of the reason is just like with guitar playing, drums can smooth out the whole ensemble and folks that like it old timey like the jagged edges. And so for mm -hmm. me, I always tried to keep the jagged edges, especially with crooked fiddle tunes. I always tried to make sure to come up with rhythmic patterns that would accentuate the jaggedness instead of the uh, straightening, straightening the jaggedness out because I felt that that was something I thought was really exciting about a lot of the old time fiddle music I listened to because it wasn't conventional and it didn't mm -hmm. fit four four patterns and so I made parts that fit those um, unorthodox right. melodies. That's awesome. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And the bones are great for the banjo, especially with the gourd banjo with the bones. And uh, especially a lot of the music of the mid-19th century, as a Bones player, if I can find someone that plays circus jig or any of those type of numbers from the banjo instructors, um, there are such beautiful spaces for polyrhythmic experimentation between the banjo and the Bones. In all of those, uh, the Briggs banjo instructor and the Converse and all those tunes have a lot of room for that. So it's also really an exciting time to, in the past decade, we've seen a lot more interpretation of that old time music instead of just the one or two who were playing it before. So also as a Bones player, it's been an exciting time for banjo just because so many people are starting to play so many different styles. It used to be a, are you a claw hammer or a three finger guy? Or you, mm -hmm. or you might be a, or you might be a long neck Pete Seeger player, but the, you know, that's the third, that's the third party, you know? Hey, hey. <laughs> Yeah. Or a jazz banjo player, and that's in another house, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's very true. That's why. That's, that's where true. I'm usually hanging, you know. <laughs> Looking for the George Lewis jam, you know. 
I love it. I love it. Actually, on Stars of Music, there's a we have a, a gentleman in the chat. He's he comes every week. Um, Alan Jones is in the UK, um, and he was asking, mm -hmm. have you ever dabbled with uh, any Irish or, or traditional Irish music, um, kind of outside the US and, and you know into that that area. My main experimentations into Irish music have been ballad singing. When I do my ballads, I think a lot about people like Jeannie Robertson and uh, Davy Stewart and people like that. And those are very big influences on me. But banjo-wise, I haven't really done a lot with Irish music. The only thing I ever did really with Irish music that was of note was on uh, one, of the, one of the Drops albums, uh, Heritage, that came out many years ago on Dixie Frog. I did the real old Mountain Dew. <laughs> guitar part, uh, banjo part I put together to go with the five string banjo at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, but that, that's a, not a style that I've spent a lot of time with, but I can, if I was to get into a jam and I knew the song well enough, I might be able to, I might be able to fake my way through at least just because I've listened to a lot of pub session music, but I've never, mm. never tried to get good at the style itself, even though I've always loved it. You know, yeah. Pat, Mahon Pat, Pat uh, Mahoney, I'd, I'd gotten to see him uh, many, many times. It's just, oh, it's just, anyway, it's, that's a style of banjo I just wish I could get into. Too many notes, right. though. I, 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 <laughs> I, I like the polyrhythmic stuff and one chord stuff a lot of times. So <laughs> I'm still stuck on one chord. I'll, I'll get to three one day. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's next in your in your uh, in your journey, in your banjo journey. Um, one thing we we kind of talked about this off camera just a little bit, um, and then we got some questions from the from the chat as well. But um, you know, a lot of our audience for sure uh, know you from Carolina Chocolate Drops, as I'm sure many people do. Um, but you know, you've since embarked on a really quite successful uh, solo career as well, um, and I'm curious how the balance was between like creating and recording as a as a group versus now doing it on your own and kind of uh, what what has changed in in those processes uh, as you create your music for your for your solo career. Well, you know, I modeled myself after my good friend Mike Seeger for many years, and I, having just seen his albums as both a soloist and in the band, the New Lost City Ramblers, I just thought that I should try to do that too. I asked Mike about it at one point. I said, Mike, how do you balance a, a, a band and a solo career at the same time? How would you recommend I go about that? And he said, don't. <laughs> and but I went and did it anyway, just because uh, he he was a uh, you know just, I, I always had my individual ideas about how I wanted to go about music in addition to doing this the music in the group. So th I I never think of it as two separate uh, entities. But there were um, in a group you always have to compromise. You always have everybody else's ideas, and you have to figure out ways to work everybody's artistic uh, uh, expression and statement into the 
the uh, music of the group. And in my own solo music, at least when it comes to banjo, I was never the main banjo player in the Carolina Chocolate Drops. I had a couple of songs I played banjo on, but I wasn't ever the main banjo player. So in my own solo work, I tend to show off a lot more of my intricate styles that I've picked up over time within my own solo work, just because they're in the course of a show, there was never enough time for me to show off all the styles without it just mm -hmm. being my own show compared to it being everybody's show. So that was one of the things that that's different about a, a lot of my um, solo work, as well as a lot more blues and a lot more jazz influence within the the scheme of the the music because uh, that's that's definitely closer to my heart. You know, I, mm -hmm. I still love the fiddle and banjo music, but I um, uh, it's just blues and jazz is more of my my banjo style in of itself. So I people will hear instantly that there's something familiar, but they'll know that there's a, a little bit of a different flavor when they hear my my solo stuff just because of that alone. Okay. Sorry, I muted myself. That was my fault. <laughs> frantically typing in the chat. I didn't want you guys to hear all the, all the crazy typing. Um, Great. Thanks yeah. for all the questions so far, folks. I'm oh, really, yeah. really appreciating it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. I know you're, we're in an hour and 10 minutes. I know you, you, you said about an hour, so we're not going to keep you too much longer. Um, but we wanted to talk about licks a little bit as well, particularly uh, one particular style of, of lick and uh, the hit em up style. You want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I don't get to talk about this that much. You know, last year I did a tour in Spain and for the first time in a long time, I heard the song Hit 'Em Up Style on the, the loudspeakers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, you know, a lot of you backup musicians will know this. I, I, I jumped back into playing position like I was on the road in 2010. Um, I just started to I heard the because the song starts out with the fiddle. Da, 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 and I heard it and. Without knowing it was on the speaker, I, in my hands, just did. Because uh, I just did that for so many years with hearing mm -hmm. fiddle. And so when we first started bringing this song into the group, it was just two chords. It was, you know, we took out 70% of the song itself and made it just a chorus. And with those two nice chords uh, you know we've we've spoken a lot about the samba and we've spoken a lot about uh, caribbean banjo i wanted to take a few of those ideas when i came up with this part but i also was thinking about the song leaving trunk by uh, my good friend taj mahal and how it has sort of a, a thump in um, his version of leaving trunk has a uh, jesse ed davis doing <laughs> You know, and it just, it, that's a funky rhythm. And yeah, I just yeah. always have loved that. So when we started to come up with how to play a hit em up style, I just kind of put a hard hammer on. So that just seemed like a nice little hip hop lick. And so I just kept on over the years embellishing that. So it, first it started out with da 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 da
became just hits, kind of like uh, I had gotten to see um, another good set of friends of mine, the Avid Brothers, for many years. I got to see the way that they had, they did hard hits with the banjo, especially early on when they were really hitting the the big stadiums and stuff. They used hard hits to really emphasize the point of the banjo instead of doing intricate banjo. And so, for mm-hmm. style, there was a combination of that: a little bit of that Taj Mahal, but a little bit of that hard. And so, and the crowds just loved it when we when we started to play the song. And um, that's one lick that I did. Uh, Your baby ain't sweet like mine on the floor since I got it. And I got to experiment with some of the jazz. you're strumming you're strumming with which finger uh sometimes it's with the pointer finger and sometimes it's with the middle finger um and if i'm doing a a frail part of my frail style is um it's a it's like a spanish guitar thing pointer thumb and then middle finger a lot of times and then i and then i get another extra strum but that goes back to when i used to be in a uh I used to be in a, uh, a, ron- a ranchera band, and they taught uh-huh. me this strum where it was, you know, the yep, yep. The ranchera strum is fingers, thumb, thumb, fingers, and so even in banjo playing, sometimes uh, you know when I used to play a lot wilder. Nowadays, I don't tend to do this as much. If I really wanted to get crazy back in the days, I do. <laughs> strumming patterns of i did a whole black sheep earlier where you know from listening to uncle dave macon there's a whole Uh series of ways to be able to get the mechanics of your banjo uh tricks down and things like that fabulous yeah so cool so cool well i have um i have a few questions um if you don't mind uh answering a few before we start to wrap up here um you good for time you got like oh, five, sure. yeah, yeah. let's okay. fi- let's fire away a little bit i've been doing a lot of banjo examples let me get some of these questions out out here since uh, people are wanting to maybe want to know a few things yeah so um we have a, a couple of people um specifically um asking about the the black banjo gathering and how they can be more involved in that particular community and, and be more involved in that old time of music what advice would you give uh, to anyone looking to try and get into that world a little bit more? Um, are there any, I mean, events, obviously, not exactly right now, but websites, uh, resources out there hmm. you recommend? 
Well, you know, one of the things that the hardest thing about this this type of music, especially with African-American string band music, is there's no singular unified uh, area that you can find all of the information. I would again inquire that you email me at theamericansongster at gmail.com and I'll see what I can do. But what I would recommend is the same thing Mike Seeger recommended to me. Be as specific as possible with what you're trying to find first because there's so much information out there especially with old-time music so many different recordings and so many ways you can approach the music that be as specific as possible not trying to get all the information and then you will find that you'll be able to get a lot more information out of things so when you email me just be real specific like if you like dog boggs's music i have information that can you know there there are extensive interviews that mike seeger did with dog boggs talking about how um African-American banjo players influenced him beginning to play the banjo, things like that. I, I have those things, but if you were very specific, I could try to lead you at least down the path you're looking to find. Um, yeah, that's all I could say about that. Yeah, yeah I'm always generous, open for it. Yeah, very generous offer on, on your part. Thank you very much for, for supporting that. That's a big deal. It kind of leads into another question um, with regards to, um, let me read it in do that. The, the idea of using banjo's multiracial history as a tool for unity, basically, particularly you know as we as we as we live today, uh, would you agree with that? And how do we increase the diversity of banjo players? The first thing I would say is you have to get people to like the music. It's always yeah. about the music. Um, you know, of course, the the banjo uh, was actually uh, was actually. Uh, it was in some ways it was reappropriated by Pete Seeger because he made it more of a political and social tool as a part of his act. And that's one of the ways that the banjo became very political as something that is consciously being done. Before that, it, it wasn't necessarily a, an instrument for social change, but nowadays in the modern age, you can't help but think about the banjo and not think about racial justice in some sort of way. Because of course there have been a lot of conversations about how do I, what, in, what material should I learn? What material shouldn't I learn? But you have to think back, what do you like about the music and why are you wanting to learn it? And that will lead you every single time. A lot of people ask me, you know, how do you keep from performing material you're not comfortable with? But I don't perform material that I'm never comfortable with. If I can't sit and talk with you about it, I won't bother trying to interpret a song that I feel is just as easily in the vaults. Um, without. But if you need to pull out something that is evocative, I would always recommend think about why you're doing it. Why do you need this in your repertoire and what effect are you trying to make on the audience? Because it would just be just as easier to share that information without performing it. So that, that, that's a little heady of an answer, but you know, that gives you kind of some insight to think about when, um, when looking into all the different types of music, because it's, it's quite diverse in terms of the history, good and bad. And and every other type of thing in between. I mean, just even just musically, it's very hard to, it takes a long time to start being able to pick out, hey, that's a version of, that John Henry's a lot like the Kentucky String Ticklers, isn't it? You know, like that type of, you know, it takes a while to be able to discern like, hey, that, you know, and um, that even itself can be its own journey. Absolutely, and you've said it a few times uh, throughout this discussion, it's, it's about the music, right? That's really the, the, the fundamental part and, and I've said to you know most of my life really since I've been playing music is I feel like it's the one thing that all of us have in common it doesn't matter if it's the same genre or whatever but the idea of making music and melody and rhythm and, and all these kind of attributes 
really are the thing that ties together as human beings. I, I can't think of another another thing off the top of my head. But would you is agree that, with that? Yeah, I mean, it's it between that. The only th- other thing is maybe food that can tie everybody together in uh, such a way. But music, know, music is one of those things, though. You can. You can get a lot of people together around some beautiful music. And then yeah. for me, I use it as a tool because that's why I make the written materials. Cause then hopefully um, I'll have done my job as an artist and you like the song and then you might want to know more. And then I happen to have written materials that say here, here's, here's the more info you might uh, want to know. And, and I, I, being a big fan of people like Sam Charters as well. I also like to leave my discoveries open-ended so that others can journey because I can't do it all in one in one lifetime, you know. So who knows what someone else might find? Someone might find a, a banjo bigger than Big Head Joe, you know. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the challenge for Deering. I think a twenty-two inch rim. I think we're venturing into drums. There's that bass right. banjo always that's out there. That you know. That... Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah, don't yeah, call yeah. the banjo museum up. They're gonna they'll pull out the biggest banjo that's ever been made. Huh? <laughs> I love it. As Dan, Dan Mazer, our good buddy Dan, who's in the chat today, hey Dan, he says the physics of vibrating strings is the same everywhere. Couldn't be couldn't be more accurate. I think I would agree with that statement. Um, you know, one last question to uh, to wrap up here. Um, I think, given the history, given everything uh, as the banjo is today, which is again, like I said, it's a very different beast to what it uh, started life as. Where do you think it fits in in culture today with everything going on? You know, it fits. It fits more so than ever. I think. Um, I think that there are. Let me think of how to describe it. Because the banjo has had so many different evolutions. I've been. I've been glad to see banjos uh, m- uh, more present in popular music than I've ever seen them before. In a general sense, that's a, yeah. a beautiful thing. Because before they were usually only bluegrass banjo. If you saw it in a uh, a mainstream popular culture version. Of course, in terms of the old time communities, there are a lot of newer, younger people that are coming out that even folks that I haven't met that I still need to meet that um, are are doing their own version of the same journey that I went on. So I, I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, I mean, again, you know, like our like our friend Dan said, the physics of strings vibrating is what holds us all together. And I think um, I mean, there's a there, there are a lot of different ways that that those strings are are still holding us together even to this day. You know, I mean, that, that, that's kind of where, how I, how I feel about it in general, you know? 100%, 100%. All right, well, I'd invite you to, to share any closing thoughts, final thoughts for the day, Dom. Um, and in a minute, I'm gonna ask you to play us out some, but uh, any, any, any final words of wisdom? Oh, well, I mean, always the final words of wisdom are keep on trucking, keep on picking and keep on playing. <laughs> and uh, you know this is a this is a very special time here in the early 20th century in 2020. We have so many opportunities to be able to reanalyze the history that's already been written about this music and be able to correct it or expand it. And that's what I've been trying to do for the better part of two decades. And I've been pleased with the few things I've been able to do, but there's so much more that that still can be done. And of course, some of the, some things um, are being unearthed every day. You know, like the fact that I found this banjo and have, have, uh, have tried to uh, sing its praises everywhere. I've only done so much 
like I can. But like I said, that next person with the bigger banjo, they might have a, a little something different. But if you keep on searching and keep on playing, you're always going to find some new songs and some new music. And let me go ahead and uh, hit a little bit of keep on trucking to um, evoke a little bit of the sound of one of my old mentors, Boo Hanks. And he play, he taught me this old uh, Blind Boy Fuller number here. It's a pleasure to be with you all. And again, it's um, Deering is a has been a wonderful company uh, to work with for many, many years. And I hope it's many, many more years and uh, many more banjos and many more tunes to play. Absolutely. Uh, and, and before you uh, jump into that, um, just a, a quick note, Dave, um, any final words from yourself before we part ways? I just want to say thanks for doing this, Dom. Uh, um, and this was, you know, it's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, it's just great, yeah. to, great to talk with you and great to hear you play. Yeah, really, really cool to do that, and, and so, uh, so much positivity in the chat. That, that I will say, the chat today has just been frantic, way, way busier and 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 um, involved than normal. So thank you everybody for tuning in. Do check out uh, DeeringBanjos.com forward slash live, um, and Dom's video will be up there uh, tomorrow, and it will be on our YouTube channel about ten minutes after we wrap up here, so you can view it again if you wish. Um, and don't forget, IBMA is next week, so stay tuned. Dom, play us out, my friend. All right, keep on trucking, trucking my blues away. <laughs>